0: This is Exchanges at Goldman Sachs. I'm Heath Terry of Goldman Sachs Research. Jake Seward is off this week. Welcome to another episode of our Venture Capital Horizon series, where we use the lens of venture capital to identify emerging technologies, business models and entrepreneurs. In our first episode, we looked at the growth of a new field of medicine called computational biology. And during a time when we are reminded daily of the critical role science plays in solving the world's biggest problems, we're now going to dive into clean energy technology and how sustainable power energy storage, and decarbonization can help shape our future. Clean energy technology has been a priority for governments and some corporations for a while, but it's had a tricky relationship to venture capital. As recently as 2013, we saw a nearly 40% decline in VC funding into the space following a number of high-profile venture-backed failures. But that's changing. The European Commission's European Green Deal aims to reduce the EU's net carbon emissions to zero by 2050, and by our economists' estimates, could amount to $7 trillion of cumulative spending. In ESG investing, growth in sustainable assets increased by 34% between 2016 and 2018. And venture is no exception. $31 billion has gone into the category over the last three years, a more than 130% increase over the prior three-year period. One of the areas that has recently attracted growing interest in BC funding is nuclear energy. Now, of course, nuclear energy has been around for quite some time, and its history has been a complicated one. On the one hand, it's a true zero carbon energy solution, but it almost goes without saying that concerns around reactor safety as well as reactor waste has slowed, and in some cases reversed, adoption of the technology. But That doesn't mean innovation in nuclear power has stalled. If reactors could be made smaller, They could be far less costly to build, safer to operate, and easier to locate, particularly in places where other green technologies like solar and wind energy cannot efficiently provide power. Following some of the smartest venture investing in this space led us to Jacob DeWitt and Carolyn Cochran, co-founders of Oaklo, an early advanced fission company developing small-scale nuclear power plants. So walk us through the technology behind Oklo's version of advanced fission and how does it compare to the large cooling tower dominated nuclear plant that most people probably envision when they they think about it?
1: Yeah, for sure. So, you know, today's reactors use water primarily as the coolant and they're also very, very big, right? So you're talking about typically one gigawatt. That's a lot of power, right? And uh, systems that like you described, are pretty large physically. What we've done is kind of go in a route where we think going smaller and simplifying things is really one of the key factors here to realizing I think the promise that we have in the atom. And so we do that by building on a, a fuel form that's been demonstrated and proven. It's very robust in basically decades of operational experience in reactors. It's metallic fuels. They're Very highly thermally conductive, so they're great at removing heat. They are pretty easily made, so it's good for fabrication and costs. And they're also very good at expanding under temperature, and that's a really important characteristic because as it heats up, it expands, that actually shuts the reactor down. And then you combine that with effectively liquid metal cooling, something that's also really good at moving heat, and that opens up the door to have a system that's pretty simple, pretty small.
0: Not only is Oaklo's nuclear fission technology potentially capable of supplying communities with affordable clean energy, It's also capable of doing so in a sustainable way by recycling fuel. One of the biggest concerns with nuclear power has always been the waste byproducts. But you actually recycle your fuel and convert that waste into into energy. How have you achieved that and how applicable could that technology be to existing plants and their waste?
1: Yeah, it's a great question. Something I've spent a decent amount of my time working on (laughs) throughout my life. So if you don't mind, I'll get a little bit in the weeds. No, please do. We like the weeds. So when you split an atom through fission, one of the things you do is you also release a couple of neutrons, usually two to three, and those then can continue on and continue the chain reaction. Uh, When you do that, though, when they're born, those neutrons are emitted from the fission process with quite a bit of energy. So they're going really, really fast and in today's reactors we slow those neutrons down by bouncing them off of the light atoms like lightweight atoms like hydrogen and water the reason we do that is it slows the neutrons down and makes them easier to catch in other words absorb and that's useful because it helps us have less fuel we need less fuel then to keep the reaction going because the neutrons are easier to catch but when they're going slow they're easier to catch just like if you throw a very lofted pass in football uh, it's a lot easier to intercept that
0: pass but slower neutrons also end up getting absorbed by things that aren't fuel, essentially interfering with the reaction and limiting the amount of energy you can get.
1: In our reactor, we are what's called a fast reactor. So we let those neutrons kind of run as they're born, which is fast. We do need more fuel to accommodate that. But the cool thing is they're pretty hard to catch, but that means that not many things other than the fuel catch them. So we can run for quite a bit longer um, before you end up sort of depleting fuel and you're not poisoned or other things aren't really parasitically absorbing neutrons to slow the reactor to stop the reaction in the same way it does in a slower neutron system. The other cool thing is because the neutrons are going fast, they carry energy with them and that helps them actually cause fission in pretty much all of the actinides, which are if you think about the periodic table, the very lower rows that stick out kind of separate from everything else, the things that go to the right over from uranium, things like neptunium, plutonium, americium, curium Those are the actinides. And uh, the reason those matter is those build up over time in a reactor because uranium absorbs neutrons and over time transmutes. And those are the things that actually dictate the long lifetimes for nuclear waste. Um, You know, used fuel today has long storage timelines largely driven by those elements, those isotopes. Well, when you have fast neutrons, you can actually fission them, which is a really elegant way of, breaking them into shorter lived byproducts while also extracting a lot of energy in the process. So it's a really elegant way of basically managing, you know, kind of a situation and reducing effectively the the waste half lives and the waste lifetimes in there. So that's effectively what we do, right? We're a fast reactor. And because we have the capability then to actually tap into the energy reserves in these actinides that you couldn't otherwise do, you're able to then you know, reduce the half-lives of the effective byproducts at the end while extracting energy. What that looks like is by fissioning those things, those byproducts are much shorter, have much shorter half-lives. They still have, you know, waste still has a lifetime, right? What we end up discharging from our reactor, these fission products, the byproducts of fission, and they're still going to have a half-life on the order of about, on average, 30 years. But that's much better when you're talking than, some of the things you're you know <laughs> breaking apart to make those which have happened right. sometimes in the order of hundreds of thousands of
0: years the ability for a reactor to recycle its own waste isn't unique to Oaklo. between the 1960s to the 1990s a reactor in idaho was recycling its own waste fuels what is unique however is Oaklo's ability to reuse that exact material as a fuel source today
1: we're going to be working with the department of energy's materials that they have from used fuel actually from that reactor that i just described and actually reusing that material as fuel in our reactor, actually doing that right kind of off the bat showing that this can be done. So it's a pretty elegant solution to what's considered one of the bigger problems. It's actually a pretty big opportunity and to put some numbers on it, you know, these are taken based on, you know, kind of the US total amounts of the used fuel and also sort of the byproducts of uranium enrichment. There's generally enough energy content and all of those materials to provide for power for the United States for a thousand years, all of our power needs for a thousand
0: Mm -hmm. years nuclear energy already provides around 10% of the world's electricity and is the world's second largest source of low carbon power. As Oaklo's COO, Carolyn Cochran leads the company's regulatory process, which has led to the Department of Energy approving Oaklo's plan to build their Aurora micromodular reactor at the Idaho National Laboratory.
2: One of the things that We've heard from people and and utilities or potential consumers. It's like, well, I'm interested in this, but is it like a 10 year timeline to go through the regulatory process? And how do we how does that look as far as burden for me? One of the things we've been trying to really look at is with our application for this very first one, how can we ensure that the following ones are as simple as possible? So we can use do as much encompassing analysis for this first one that we'll basically already encompass what could happen at the next one at a different site or the site. So for instance, we try to do extreme analyses for seismic. So, if we're citing one area, do we have to redo all of our seismic analysis for another area? If we've already analyzed our design against really bad earthquake scenarios, right? Um, And I'm kind of simplifying it, but then we can kind of say, okay, this analysis still holds for this next site. There are still maybe some really, really extreme sites that we'd have to do additional analysis, but what our goal was is try to make it more or less copy and paste. And one of the interesting things is that the regulator has a format for doing that.
0: At the same time, success will depend on a number of additional technologies reaching economic viability and mass adoption. A key one of those is battery and grid storage. And no one knows that better than Brian Lee, head of clean energy for Goldman Sachs Global Investment Research.
3: Well, um, storing power has never really been a novel concept per se, because we've seen it in different industries over time, whether it be consumer electronics or others. The idea of storing energy in large-scale format on the grid or behind the grid, depending on what type of application, I think that's one area where we're starting to see the technologies really mature, the cost curve moving down. And the complementary nature of battery storage with existing renewable energy technologies like wind and solar and others just makes it that much more compelling.
0: So where are we in batteries from a technology standpoint and a business model standpoint? You mentioned that we've been through a couple of cycles of this this already. What's on the cutting edge at this point?
3: The cutting edge really depends on you know whether you're looking at the commercialized area of the market, which really is dominated by lithium-ion technology. And so from that vantage point, the technology is quite mature. The costs have come down dramatically. We've had a lot of learnings from consumer electronics and more recently electric vehicles adopting these batteries. So applying lithium-ion technology to the battery storage market on the grid. You know, it hasn't been a step function leap forward. It's been more uh, leveraging the the learnings that we've seen from some of these other industries.
0: But other battery technologies are being developed, as well as ways to integrate them into power grids. Here's Brian again.
3: So, you know, you you may have heard of technologies like flow batteries or solid state batteries sodium sulfur there's there's a, a multitude of different battery technologies that are trying to move from R&D and lab and pilot phase to commercialized status some have already started to break through but not to the extent that lithium ion has and so i think what you're going to start to see is you know new supply chains for some of these battery technologies starting to really mature You may start to see some, you know, upstream, midstream, downstream differentiations across business models in terms of battery hardware makers versus the software makers, which make the batteries work more effectively. And then, you know, deploying batteries... is is not a trivial exercise in and of itself when it comes to putting this equipment onto the grid. And so when you're dealing in a utility scale setting, the integrators and the system developers are also gonna be a key part of how the ecosystem and and business models evolve as we move forward in battery storage.
0: I asked Jacob and Carolyn about where they see other exciting clean technologies coming from beyond their own. At the end of the day,
1: what we look at is the need for power is only going to increase across the world, especially when you think about the fact that there's about a billion people who don't really have access. We have to think about how we develop that out and a key enabler to that are technologies that are gonna be producing you know, controlled, you know, dispatchable power when you need it and can scale. And Fission is gonna to have to be one of the heavy lifters here. And it, I think it will be. And I think it's a pretty kind of exciting time too when you look at the hard tech development going on you know, in these other spaces in the energy sphere because One is it validates that these things can be successful, that investments in technology development can work in these areas across a broad swath of different approaches. And that just helps draw more capital in the system to help us get more technologies and things deployed to market.
2: Yeah, we can be so insular here in the United States. And I think we we do hear about, like, okay, The world is developing, the world needs more power, and largely that's going to fossil fuels. I think people forget here, too, that nuclear is between 60 and 70 percent of our clean energy in the United States alone. With a lot of the rest of that being hydro, we really have to think about all the tools on deck as far as how do we not just grow population, grow in energy use and do it sustainably. I think it's, you know, when we get outside the United States, and Jake and I, or various people on our team, go to conferences all over the world, and you end up seeing people from Africa and India and different developing nations and say, you know, we don't just want solar, we want more integrated grids that can provide us power day and night. And we've had interns, for instance, from different African countries and really look into what, is, what does that require. So I think it's an exciting thing, but it's it's a cool thing to think about how all of these tools could be used energy is, you know, the expenditures on energy per year globally, $6 trillion. So it's a huge market that needs a lot of all of the above.
0: That concludes this latest episode of Exchanges. Jake will be back next week. Be sure to tune in at the end of this week for our Exchanges Markets Update, where Goldman Sachs experts share their perspective on the week's financial development. We hope you enjoyed today's podcast. And if you did, please subscribe and rate us on Apple Podcasts. I'll join you next month with another episode of Venture Capital Horizons. Until then, I'm Heath Terry. Thanks for listening.
4: All price references and market forecasts correspond to the date of this recording. This podcast should not be copied, distributed, published, or reproduced in whole or in part. The information contained in this podcast does not constitute research or a recommendation from any Goldman Sachs entity to the listener.